following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, good morning. Well, it's good morning where we're at, um, but you might be listening to this in the afternoon or late at night to fall asleep. But once again, it is the Westminster Larger Catechism podcast, Larger for Life, where we have five men who love good theology, good spreadsheets, and good friends. And uh, this is Derek Bright from Aliceville, and I've got my four uh, co-hosts along with me, Sean Morris. Hey, Derek. I don't know about you, but I love me some Scott Edberg. I mean, who doesn't love Scott Edberg? What a pal. I had never even heard, much less used, an Excel spreadsheet until I met Scott, until Scott came into my life. Yeah, I didn't know such a thing existed. Who what knew? What would we do without him? Who knew? And then we got Matt Adams. Good morning, uh, listeners. Fun fact about me, I also love Scott Edberg. My heart overflows with affinity for him, actually. Um, this show, actually, I'm going to dedicate everything I say uh, to the honor of Scott Edberg for this episode, Derek. So I appreciate you calling on me. Yeah, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. What about old Nick Bullock there? Hey, everybody. You know, I, I just want to echo what I've heard my brothers say. Um, this one goes out to our greatest fan, Scott Edberg. Uh, we're thankful that you're listening, buddy. And uh, we hope this goes a long way to helping your week go by even better. And last, but certainly not least, the greatest mustache in the PCA, Stephen Spinnenweber. Wow. High praise. I I don't know that I can claim that, but I can definitely claim that I have the best mustache of the I Heart Scott Edberg fan club, of which I am the self-appointed president and proud of it. So it's a it's great to be here. Well, if you can't tell, we are all very affectionate towards Scott Edberg because he is a gift to the PCA and uh, we don't know what our denomination would do without him. So. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our topic. Today we have larger catechism questions 26 and 27. Question 26, how is original sin conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity? Answer, original sin is conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity by natural generation. So as all that proceed from them in that way are conceived and born in sin. Spin, why don't you kick us off there about original sin since you seem to probably know a lot about that yeah i'm more originally sinful than you are uh, yeah original sin um i think these questions are, are talking about how is it that the guilt of adam's first sin comes to us what is the mode of transmission if you will and we want to be really clear uh that the um Transmission of the sin is, is not because ordinary generation in and of itself is sinful per se, but rather that this is the mechanism um, that by virtue of our being descendants from Adam, according to the flesh, we uh, inherit his guilt, and, and that's how it's transmitted to us. So we don't think that, for example, um, that 
you know, the the marital act, I'm going to speak, uh, you know, obliquely here, but that the marital act is somehow a necessary evil for the propagation of the human race. Um, no, it's, it's a good thing between husband and wife, but because we are all corrupted, we produce corrupted offspring uh, born originally sinful into the world. So for those of you on the pod who are more theological wonks than I am, I know that there's, I think it's WGT Shed and others who had sort of this realist understanding of Adam, that we were in Adam's loins, that we are guilty and we have original sin, not because we've inherited it so much, but because we merited it by our having committed that sin actually in Adam. Is that a fair representation of that view? And uh, if if it is, why would you say that the majority of the Reformed don't subscribe to that view, guys? Well, Spin, I'll take, right, a, I'll, I'll take a first stab at, at your answer here in that I think that part of the reason the majority in our Reformed heritage have shied away from embracing this view is because I don't know that it does justice to our covenant representative or federal theology uh, of our of our father Adam in what he did in sinning as our federal representative there in the garden and then that being yeah, passed down to us let me read just a bit to you from what uh, from from our our reliable friend our constant companion here throughout this this podcast uh, Voss and his commentary on the larger catechism uh, he he begins to explain here what's been imputed to us because of Adam's covenant relationship. Well, the guilt of Adam's first sin, he answers, has been imputed to all of his posterity. In other words, to all human beings except Jesus Christ. Um, there is that additional layer, though, that we need to reckon with, and, and actually Voss helps us do that too, that there is more than just a federal representative relationship. There's more than just a symbolic or covenantal headship here. There is a there is a real uh, biological connection or biological relationship, if you like. He says, Voss says, besides the federal or covenant relationship, which came to an end when he committed his first sin, Adam also had a natural relationship to us as our first ancestor. This natural relationship continued through his life. He goes on, we have derived our physical or bodily life from Adam through our parents and more remote ancestors who descended from him. And that's part of what this catechism question is getting at is, as you've already alluded to, Spin, that the normal biological way in which human children are made, human babies are made, the natural progenitory act, that's how it's passed down. That sin nature, the way human babies are conceived knit together in their mother's womb, and born into this world. In sin did my mother conceive me, David says in Psalm 51. Uh, our first parents being sinful, their posterity must be sinful too. Job chapter 14, uh, verse 4 gives some understanding to that. Job 15, all mankind are born with a sinful nature. Uh, John 3, where the Lord Jesus is speaking with Nicodemus at night. Natural generation produces only sinful human nature. That's why there's this thing called the new birth, which we so desperately need. So original sin is conveyed from our first parents unto their posterity, that is, unto subsequent generations of humanity by natural generation, by natural child procreation. So that as all proceed from them, if you're related to Adam and Eve, 
And you are, if you have human DNA, then you are in that way conceived and born in sin and have inherited sin from them from eons on back. Nick, take it away, brother. You know, one of the things our listeners may be picking up on is this, um, th- these two terms, uh, the biological um, or um, ancestral genealogical uh, view of where original sin begins, its natural relationship in the flesh of people, specifically the person Adam to all of us, uh, by regular, natural, ordinary generation. And then the federal language that Sean is using, or covenant language. Federal is just an exchangeable word for covenant. And one of the things that I want to say to our listeners is that when we're discussing this, the larger catechism understands the <clears throat> the transfer of sin, specifically person to person, to answer the question of how is it that a person uh, has that sin state? Uh, how is it? Do I uh, do I have this original sin? Their answer is it's profoundly biblical. Uh, the quotation of the psalm uh, where David reflects in Psalm fifty-one, "Behold, that my mother conceived." me in sin. Uh, this is just simply a, a biblical idea. It's it's a part of the, the Bible's own understanding uh, of this doctrine, but it does not negate this covenantal reality, that there is a representation uh, that is had in Adam. He is uh, a perfect representation of persons in that original probation before God when he's in the garden forbidden to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, it's an important thing to simply say it's not either or. It's I think biblically both and 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 here we're not we're not having the divines militate against a covenantal view, uh, but rather they're being very specific. And I want to kind of get back of that and and ask the question why. And and I'm not certain that this is why the divines are going in this direction, but I can at least say this answers uh, a different question, and that has to do with. Um, a person's own experience of original sin. Is sin just a thing that is spiritually inherited? Is it a thing external to the person where we only have um, the spiritual consequences? Well, if we have a good doctrine of our own uh, humanity, a good anthropology, we have to say no, that sin touches our bodies. We are a psychosomatic unity That's where right. soul and body both are um, in one person not a separable thing uh, that could be distinguished according to sin. And so whenever they're making this distinction uh, regarding the, the uh, natural generation and the transfer of original sin to persons, it gives us some very definitive answer regarding the simple issue of um, man's proclivity to die. Why do we die? We die because of the sin nature we have. Someone might say, well, how could that child die? Well, that child has it according to their original relation and original sin in Adam. They're guilty even in him of the transgression, and they receive that curse in their bodies, which is only natural to all persons. There's a reason we get sick. There's a reason we age and our bodies feel older and more decrepit with every year that passes by. We grow more frail and infirmed. Uh, these are just eventually one day in God's providence we will we will die unless the Lord Jesus returns first. Uh, all of these are just facts and realities of the outworking of sin as it touches upon this physical world and upon our physical bodies, as you already said, Nick. Yeah, I think that you know when we're 
when we see the Apostle Paul wrestling with his sin nature in Romans 7, you know, I know, you know, I'm not, I don't take the position that he is talking about a, a pre-conversion experience, um, that he was a, you know, sinful being before he met Christ on the, on the road to Damascus. Um, I think he's talking about the struggle with this original sin in his flesh, even uh, post-conversion. Um, but just to, to tie in that, that body and soul language and help our listeners understand, Paul, all throughout Romans 7, is talking about, in my mind, I, I know that I'm not supposed to, to sin. And even in my heart, I, I hate the sin that I commit, but I see my sin in my members, he says, you know, um, and every, the, the, the sin in nature has affected not only my, my soul, but my, but my body. Um, I, I do the sin that I hate. And I've always thought that that was real helpful in, in trying to understand how, uh, depraved original sin actually, uh, makes us, um, it affects both body uh, and soul. And, and I do want to kind of point out because Sean, um, talked about it or mentioned it when he was reading Voss, this, this natural generation, um, he, Voss says, you know, it affects this original sin affects everybody, but Christ, um, you know, the, the, the Westminster divines are, are setting us up to this supernatural generation that comes to us in the person of Christ. Right. 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 Um, you know, we're recording, uh, and I spin Weber, I saw your, you know, thread of gifts when, when the word advent is mentioned, but we are getting close to what, what everybody else, uh, considers the advent season or the Christmas season. And so we're, you know, we're, we're thinking about, we're, we're kind of focusing upon, uh, the incarnation of Christ. Uh, Christ comes as a baby, uh, through a supernatural generation, uh, that the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary, uh, works supernaturally within her body to knit together the Christ child in her womb so that he might be born of a woman uh, just as we were, but yet without a sin nature. That's right. Uh, because he was uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so you know, I think that's, you know, really important for us to distinguish is, you know, that that the 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 catechism is is already setting us up for a redeemer, aren't they? You know, they're going to talk to us about sin. They're going to talk to us about uh, the the natural generation of how sin is conveyed to us from Adam and Eve unto us. Um, and, and they're even going to talk about the misery uh, question 27 that we're going to handle this episode, the misery in which our depraved status, uh, you know, renders within us and in, within our world. But then it's pointing us to one that's going to come through a, a supernatural generation that's going to make all things right again. Uh, Genesis three fifteen, the the first presentation of the gospel. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Matt. You and I have all inherited a sin nature because we all have an ordinary human father and human mother, and we were, we were made in the ordinary human way. Uh, the Lord, the, this is not true of the Lord Jesus. Uh, he has a human mother. He does not have a human father. Joseph wasn't his human father, and so he was not conceived as an embryo in Mary's womb in the ordinary way. Therefore, he does not inherit that sin nature from Adam as we all have. Spin. And you could see 
now how essential some of these doctrines are. I mean, this is the hundredth year of our uh, man Machen and the book Christianity and Liberalism, and how people, in their attempts to rescue the gospel from obscurity and from societal neglect, they felt, okay, maybe we can compromise or soften our stance on some of these doctrines that up until very recently have been essential for Christians to believe. And so the virginal conception of Christ, the virgin birth, well, maybe it's just a theory. And can Christianity still maintain uh, its power, even if we sort of explained away this inexplicable, according to man, this inexplicable miracle? And we see, based on this question, why that's impossible and how systematic theology, everything's interconnected. And a compromise in one place necessarily begets compromises in other places. And so if we don't have the virgin conception of Jesus Christ, then we have a sinful Christ who can't atone for his own sins, much less the sins of all of his people throughout uh, time. You know, one of the things I want to do is simply say, you know, echoing the other brothers, uh, that our doctrine of sin has to form our doctrine of the cross. If we don't have a good sin theology, we will have no idea the motive of the Savior hanging upon the cross. It would ultimately be a, a petty punishment uh, against a man unto death, and any person could have the, the punishment of a criminal rather than the divine retribution and, and wrath against uh, a sinful humanity being placed upon the flesh of a Redeemer uh, and a substitution. Uh, one of the things that I, I do want to point to is that as we talked about this supernatural generation of Jesus Christ, that we are in no way militating or denying the truth of what would be called the anhypostatic union of Jesus with the nature and um, flesh of Mary. She is uh, truly his mother. He really is very God of very God and very man of very man. He was made of Mary's substance. Um, half of his genetic makeup come from her and the other half, a unique supernatural creation by God the Holy Spirit in her womb. And so before anyone gets confused and says, oh, well, uh, here we have the men saying that Jesus is, well, not human like we're human, at least, or maybe more than that, I want to just say no. Now, we're looking at these things both in their place. We're saying Christ had no original sin, no original guilt or nature to do sin because of the manner in which he was born in the womb of his mother, according to the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is such an important thing to point out, because if we don't have that clear, then he's guilty on that cross and he's hanging because of his own sin and the guilt that he would have inherited. But that's simply not the case. That would undermine and undo the message of the gospel and the hope of the cross. Jesus would just simply be a criminal. He wouldn't be our substitute. You know, I think, Nick, that you're hitting on something that, that's very important for our for our listeners to understand because uh, in the in the earthly ministry of Jesus, when he speaks, it's not through the the mediator of a of a prophet, is it in the old testament? Jesus gets to speak and he gets to say, Thus says the Lord, I say, you know, it, it's a it's a change in 
It's a change in even language. I've been preaching through Zechariah uh, on Sunday evenings at, at First Pres Dillon, and we just tackled uh, the first part of chapter eight. And it's almost hard to read because it's so choppy in the thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. But then when we move to the Gospels, it's truly I say to you that when we see Christ, we're seeing the very uh, God uh, of heaven, the creator of the universe. And, and and yes, he is the son, but he's also uh, truly God, the very God man um, as has been established. And so. You know, don't don't hear us saying even when we say, you know, his DNA makeup is is comprised of of Mary uh, by, uh, you know, being born of a woman and then supernaturally uh, wrought about in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, uh, that we're saying that he's somewhat of a, a 50 50 God even. No, 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 no. He is 100 percent God, 100 percent man. Uh and and you know Nick makes a, a great point here. If if he was not that way, um, if it, our our Redeemer was not God truly and man truly, he could not uh, he could not make an atonement for sin upon the cross. And so all of these things, as Spen and Weber just said, all of these things are tying into the gospel message, and they're so foundational. Uh, you know. Sadly, in kind of the evangelical world, you know, we don't have, you know, I'm sure there's some, but here in the, you know, deep south Bible belt, small town, South Carolina, there's not people walking around just denying the virgin birth. Right. Um, Especially during this season. But Mm. but, you know, they don't really understand why it matters either. Um, And that's why, you know, we're we're a podcast on the catechisms. Right. But um so I don't think I'm surprising anybody, but this is why we need to catechize our kids <laughs> so that we'll, we'll raise mature adults who understand the virgin birth, understand why it matters, understand why it's, uh, you know, essential to our gospel message. Um, but, you know, I, I know we need to to move on. And so, Derek, you want to you want to take us uh, to question 27? Read that for us and then we'll jump right in. Yeah, let me uh, just before we move on, though, let me say um one thing it made me think of uh, this quote by Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, Genaz, as he is affectionately called, Genaz here. Um, he's when, uh, he's one of those Acts twenty nine conference speakers, right? Yes, he's the president of Acts twenty nine. Excellent. So, um, he says, "For that which he has not," he's talking about Jesus, of course. That which he has not assumed, he has not healed but that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. And I've gotten into the habit of using that quote often in my preaching, um, especially around this time of year when we start thinking about Christmas and uh, the incarnation and that. Um, For those of you who do celebrate Christmas, I know not everybody does. Some of you are Puritans, good Puritans. But um, anyways, that's such a good quote. And it's so helpful because when Jesus assumed humanity when he took humanity to himself he took on everything it meant to be human and because we believe in original sin that we're sinners from the gate in sin did our mother conceive us and we don't believe that of course about christ that actually means that um that christ even while he's an infant 
uh, growing up, going through all the normal things. He never once sinned. Um, so that think about all the sins you committed when you were a teenager. Think about how many times you disobeyed your parents as a as a young elementary age child. Think of never all those things. Sorry. Never. Yeah. Well, that's okay. that's okay. All right. Uh, I, I'd like to challenge that, but um, but think about that. Jesus never actually faltered. We think about his sinlessness when it comes to him being a thirty to thirty three year old adult, and we go, "Oh, that's active obedience of Christ." Well, actually, we need to back it up because we were conceived in sin, and he was not. He was perfect in his conception, and so he he has taken on every single area of life and every stage of life. Um, and done it without sin, which is a, um, which is a beautiful thing. So yeah. So question 27, moving right along here. What misery did the fall bring upon mankind? Answer the fall brought upon mankind, the loss of communion with God, his displeasure and curse. So as we are by nature, children of wrath, bond slaves to Satan and justly liable to all punishments in this world and that which is to come. Before I toss it over, I just want to point out a couple things here that I, I just love about this. Two things. One is it says you can lose your communion with God, right? And um, or that, that they brought their communion with God. And that is true. Um, and that's what sin brings about. But even in the lives of the saints, when we sin, we can our communion with God can ebb and flow and grow stronger and weaker. But we never lose our union with God, our union with Christ, if we're in him. Of course, this is talking about the fall of mankind. So there's all sorts of questions surrounding that. But secondly, notice the language of just how bad it makes sin and sinners out to be that by nature, because of. Uh, the first fall because of our own sin. We are children of wrath, slaves to Satan, justly liable to all punishments. I mean, that is a, they are trying to show you the depths theologically of, of just how bad you really are. And uh, which makes me automatically think of Sean Morris. Um, and rightly so. So Sean, why don't you uh, take it from here? Well, I know we're on the, since we're already hitting on the theme of the incarnation, the, the lyrics that always come to my mind are from from Watts's Joy to the World, Far As the Curse is Found. And of course, we're thinking there of Christ's second coming. That's it, that's what that's an, uh, totally as an aside point. Joy to the World is written originally in view of Christ's second coming, his return, uh, not his first coming, even though that's the that's the uh, association that we have with it these days. But I digress. But far as the curse is found, Christ will come to make all things right and all things well. And we look forward to that day. But the point being, the curse is found everywhere, and the effects of the curse are found everywhere. We touched on that in the earlier half of the episode, thinking about how sin is not just a spiritual, ethereal, conceptual thing, amorphous thing, but it really does have physical ramifications. We see it in the decay of our bodies. We see it in the, the groaning of creation, as Romans 8 puts it. We see it uh, in the fact that we, we get sick and we get diseases and our, our bodies age uh, often poorly, and eventually we, we grow old and die. Um, but the fall brought upon mankind all kinds. Sin ruined all kinds of things. 
Adam and Eve enjoyed communion. Walking in the garden in the cool of the day, as the King James put it. They had a close, intimate fellowship. And that was marred. That was breached and it was marred and it was soiled and spoiled. That loss of communion with God that they, that, that communion with God that they had, they lost it, we lost it too. And now, rather than his benediction and favor being upon us, in that state of innocency, as the Catechism puts it, now, in our native state, inherently by birth, we have his displeasure upon us. We are under that curse. The ground is cursed. Adam has to toil and sweat in misery to, to produce the labor of his hands. To, by the sweat of his brow shall he eat. No longer does it come easily to him with, in, in a leisurely fashion. No. And moreover, we who were created in God's image are children of of wrath. That's just such a poignant expression, isn't it? The way Paul uses it in Ephesians 2, and then the as the larger catechism, question 27, picks up on it here, that we are children of wrath. We are bond slaves, bond servants, slaves to Satan, and therefore justly, isn't that interesting, justly liable. So all these, all these bad things happen to us, but it's not as if it's unfair. It's not unfair, Sean, uh, not at all. And, uh, and I think that, you know, one of the things that I hope our listeners are picking up here is that, you know, the the creation ordinances that God handed down to Adam and Eve now because of sin have been distorted and ruined. Uh, dominion, filling the earth, um, you know, made in the image of God and in righteousness. Uh, all of those things are ruined. Now to have dominion, you'll have to work hard. Uh, you'll you'll. Your, you know, hands will bleed, sweat will pour from your forehead uh, to, to have children. Uh, you know, women will have to go through the labor pains of having children now. That that righteousness in which we had is now uh, it, it, it is now, you know, given over totally uh, depraved over to uh, to Satan, that we are bond slaves of Satan. And, and I just want to, you know, I'm going to let Nick say something here in, in just a moment. Um, I guess I'll allow that on the podcast, but, uh, put it to a vote. No, let's not vote. He might not get the votes. Um, we'll do it by acclamation. Okay. Um, no, I, I I wanted to, you know, in, I don't know about you guys, but, but in, in, in pastoral counseling, um, in, you know, especially it kind of reveals itself in premarital counseling, but we, we take sin so lightly. Um, you know, we, I mean, you think about even raising children, you know, you don't want to call your, you know, you don't want to call your kid a liar. Um, so you say that you told a story or that was a little white lie. Um, I've never heard this before, but there used to be a, a, a mom in our church, that used to just say, no, she didn't lie. She told a T-Waddy. I've never heard that. Maybe y'all have a T-Waddy. Um, but it was just a way to, to excuse sin or to minimize sin. In the, in the catechism, I know we've talked about the sinfulness of sin uh, back in uh, question 24 with what is sin. But, I mean, you you really, and Derek said this, you really need to to feel the weight, the gravity of the cosmic treason that sin actually is but yeah nick i'm gonna turn it over to you you know i'll tell you somebody that doesn't minimize the uh, distinction or language of sin with their children would be scott edberg 
I saw him once stand He's over such a great a father. and say, uh, Sin is anyone a conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, and the child with eyes wide in terror trembled. Now, I'm just kidding for our, our listeners. but uh, He also then put the sin in a spreadsheet, and he said, this is the 17th time that you've told a lie this month. And I'm so the color's changing from green to yellow. It better not get to red. And okay. the child knew that because it was color coded and it was, you know, it, it was catered and tailored to their level of understanding. And uh, I mean, what a, what a guy, I mean, what, what a dad, a, what, a, what pal. a gracious guy. I mean, he would, yeah, just bring even, bring even justice and punishment as a father to the, the level of children's understanding. I want to be more like Scott myself. I mean, Excel spreadsheets are a punishment in and of themselves, as we all know. The, I mean, in fact, it's interesting that the the Westminster Divines left that out in their listing of the miseries of this life, right? <laughs> children of wrath, bond slaves of Satan, data cells and Excel spreadsheets. It should have been in there, but alas. So, you know, going back to this series, um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up is very often in evangelical circles— uh, the doctrine of original sin is accused of only being as old as Augustine, and it's not the case. Obviously, we as Reformed Christians would say and believe and teach the Bible uh, in a way that would betray a theology that it is biblical. This is just naturally biblical from Genesis to Revelation, the doctrine of original sin. Um, but one thing I want to share with you, if I, if I can share a little bit of a longer quote, it almost mirrors uh, in substance the larger catechism question 27. And this is from another church father who's a good bit uh, earlier than Augustine, a guy named Melito of Sardis. And this is from his, his, um, his sermon on the Passover, the Peripasca. He says, man who is by nature capable of receiving good and evil as soil of the earth is capable of receiving seeds from both sides. Now, he's talking about the created man, the pre-fall man, the pre-lapsarian man, if we can say it that way. And he goes on and he says that that man welcomed the hostile and greedy counselor and by having touched the tree transgressed the command and disobeyed God. Okay, so now enters the fall. He goes on and he says, as a consequence, he was cast out into this world and as a condemned man cast into prison. And when he had fathered many children and had grown very old and had returned to the earth through having tasted the tree, an inheritance was left behind for him and for his children. Indeed, he left his children an inheritance not of chastity, but of unchastity, not of immortality, but of corruptibility, not of honor, but of dishonor, not of freedom, but of slavery, not of sovereignty, but of tyranny, not of life, but of death, not of salvation, but of destruction. And so I just want to say to our listeners, the Westminster divines, whenever they're writing, whether it's the Confession, the Shorter, or here, the larger catechism, they're not making up novel and new theologies that the church has never believed. He wrote this sermon somewhere around the years 120 to 180. Okay, so we're talking about a very early Christian, and this was very near to the regular worship of the early church. Because once again, this is a sermon that was preached to the church. You know, next time I see Brad Isbell, I'm going to ask him 
what it was like to hear that sermon in person because that was powerful, Nick. That was great. Well, as we're moving to a close here on question 27, uh, I mean, this we, we could go on. We won't go on, but we could go on forever. There's just so much, there's just so much theology, good theology, pastoral theology, biblical theology packed into this, uh, to this succinct little question here. Uh, justly liable to punishments in this world and that which is to come. We've already, we've already touched on that of the miseries that we endure here in this life and the miseries that we, we might endure in the life to come if we're outside of Christ. Uh, they're not unfair. They're not undeserved. They're not unwarranted. Um, this is <laughs> this this is where the R.C. Sproul clip comes in, right, Matt? What's wrong with you people? And you think it was unfair that these these creatures made from the dust would rise up and spit in the face and sin flagrantly against the holy, thrice holy God of heaven and earth? And you think that the punishment was too severe? Uh, the Catechism would would join in in echoing Sproul's sentiment there. It, they are justly deserved, but thankfully. Uh, thankfully, we need not be children of wrath, and that's part of what the, the catechism is driving us to, that there is hope for us in Christ Jesus, that we might be transferred out of that kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light, that we might be adopted as his sons, and we need not be children of wrath, but we might be children of God and be spared uh, and pardoned from these miseries and punishments in and through uh, the glorious Son who did not have that sin nature inherited from our father, Adam, uh, thankfully for it. So we trust that this has been a, a useful and edifying discussion for all involved. Let me pass it on over to my brother Nick as he closes us out for this morning. Friends, thank you for joining us for this episode of Larger for Life as we've thought through questions 26 and 27 of the Westminster Larger Catechism on the topic of original sin and its effects in the lives of people. We hope that our discussion of this heavy topic has been helpful to you and that as we've thought over the, the sin and the sin nature of each person, that you've also thought on Christ, the Redeemer of sinners. And we hope that you'll join us next week when we take up Larger Catechism questions 28 and 29 on the punishment of sin in this world and in the world to come. Till then, this has been Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism, brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash larger for life. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.